welcome to the Napoleonicist and the start of something quite exciting. In the last episode, you'll remember that I had the brilliant Rachel Stark on, and we basically issued a threat that we might put our heads together and start to do a mini-series on Napoleon's marshals, because, well, why not? Um, and Rachel and I put our heads together, and so we're doing a mini-series on Napoleon's marshals, and we're not even sorry. Rachel, welcome to the Napoleon Assist. Well, I'm reluctant to say like the main draw, because that sounds like delusions of grandeur. And it also makes it sound like you haven't been contributing fantastic stuff to the round table things. But this is the first time you've done a, a solo one, um, which is yeah. is exciting. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you very much for, for having me. That's right. I mean, we, to be fair, we, we keep sort of talking about how there's a need for new material on the marshals, whether it's Davu or whether it's, well, pretty much any of them. Um, and I'm quite liking the prospect that we're going to perhaps do one of these a month, and it's it's going to be great. I mean, education. Um, before we start, in terms of talking about what we are going to talk about, I'm just going to talk in general terms about where people should go if they want to know a bit more about this topic. Um, and I was doing my side of the prep for this episode, and I reached for what you just called the, I don't know why I'm showing it to the screen because the, it's an audio, it's a radio show so nobody can see this. Um, you called it the the Marshall Bible. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's David Chandler's Napoleon's Marshalls. Um, in terms of today's book, was it Mark Gallagher who did the- John Gallagher. Um, John Gallagher, yeah. apologies. John G. Gallagher's biography of Dabu, uh, Davu, it's called the, the Iron Marshall. Absolutely. And that is what we're gonna be diving into today, Davu. The, the the foremost of the marshals, I think, um, it's fair to say, not yeah. hugely popular. It's amongst his contemporary to make Not remotely difficult. popular, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, he liked to make life difficult for himself. He created a fair few enemies. But I think, well, I mean, certainly reading Chandler, you get the impression, and Chandler says this, you know, he uses the word paragon of virtue. Um, it does kind of seem that Davout was... A principled individual. Yeah, I, well, he gets called the Iron Marshal, obviously, because he was an iron disciplinarian, and there's quite a lot of overlap in the way that he was perceived in the way that the Duke of Wellington was perceived, and in that sense, you know, the Iron Marshal and the Iron Duke. But I think as well, the Iron Marshal sort of um, nickname could also be applied to his principles, because he was a man of cast iron integrity. He a lot of the other marshals were very adaptable and they could sort of bend in whichever way the wind was blowing, some of them a lot more so than others. Um, but Davu wasn't afraid to argue with anyone, friend, foe, regardless of, you know, whether it was the king or, or whether it was one of his comrades. If he felt he was in the right, he was what we would call in the northeast of Scotland, Thran. He would stick his heels in and there was no shift in him. Sounds like my kind of person, to be honest with you. Um, let's let's dive in, shall we? Early life. Um, he's he's not he's not raised from the gutter. This guy. He's got a long, long military pedigree behind him, hasn't he? Yeah. So Davu was born in Anu in 1770. So he's just one year after that sort of big bumper year of Napoleonic personalities um, and his father Jean-Francois Davout is a veteran of the Seven Years War 
And there's an adage in Burgundy that says, when a Davu was born, a sword left its scabbard, because the family has this really long-standing tradition of military service, basically back to the Crusades. So he's from a really strong military pedigree, and he's from minor nobility. He's, he's not an aristocrat per se, but he's not what we'd call working class in terms of most of the other marshals, which meant he was actually one of the very few of them who was able to hold an officer's commission under the Bourbon. So there was himself and Grouchy, Serrurier, Bertie, they, they were all able to hold officer's rank. Um, he lost his father very young, which interestingly enough, seems to be a really predominant theme in, again, these sort of major Napoleonic personalities. Quite a lot of the marshals and obviously Napoleon and Wellington as well, um, and he was sent off to military school, um, the military school at Auxerre, just before he was 10. It was a really very strict, very Spartan kind of existence. It was run by Benedictine monks. So it's possible that sort of real Spartan, austere surrounding kind of shaped his attitudes and his tastes going forward. And um, after then, after then, after that, sorry, he was sent to the Ecole Militaire in Paris. He joined there three weeks after Napoleon left it. So they just narrowly sort of escaped um, being contemporaries. He seemed to be a fairly average student. There's some, certainly nothing that his tutors would have looked at him and thought that this was one of, or would be one of France's premier generals to come. He was um, noted for achievements in mathematics. He was a good mathematician, but otherwise considered a fairly Normal students certainly know early flashes of brilliance, but he did not make friends easily at school or at any point in his life. He was very good at making enemies, not so good at making friends. Yeah, um, something I can sympathise with for sure. Do we have a, a sense of where that um, that sense of principle comes from? Is it from his early life? Is it just something that he picks up along the way? Do we, do we even know? Um, he, there's, well, there's not first. There's very little on his on his parents. I know that his his mother was imprisoned, and I'll, I'll come to that later on. Or she wasn't imprisoned; she was arrested, um, under the the revolutionary government for corresponding with emigres, um, because she was reluctant to give up her friends. So there's there is that kind of sense, um, maybe from there. But he certainly was. It sounds kind of a bit trite to say he was an honest man, but he was an honest man. And he had that sort of brand of honesty that he would have told you the truth, whether you liked it or not, with little consideration of whether it upset you or not. But he would you could have relied on Davu to tell you the blunt, honest truth. Let's talk about military career pre-Napoleon then, because that's always important with these figures. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not as though, you know, Napoleon comes sweeping in and suddenly all of these people rise significance. What really surprised me reading uh, over his, his career record is why he doesn't end up being on a par with Napoleon, because he, he does well. Um, there's, and I, I think it perhaps becomes a question of quite simply patronage and Napoleon being in the right place at the right time and to his credit, exploiting those opportunities, but also exploiting the patronage system to a point where he's able to get just that little edge that keeps elevating him that bit farther, faster. Because Davout's career is it's it's complicated, 
partly because uh, as we've kind of discussed it in the the pre-show notes you know is a complicated relationship with that revolution which i'm going to leave you to talk about in more detail but he's he's good is basically what i'm saying he's very very talented he's like he's a very sound tactician he's cool under fire and he is never a general to throw men's lives away recklessly and for that reason he would butt heads with some of the other marshals which we can discuss further on um but i i think you're right in the sense that patronage definitely is an issue and the one thing that napoleon most certainly had in buckets that davu didn't have was charisma napoleon could charm people he was very good at talking them around you know to his way of thinking and convincing them to take a chance i mean he he could you know turn people who were fairly anti-bonaparte initially he he was very very good um at sort of just gradually getting them to turn their perceptions around you didn't get that with Davu. If he didn't like you, he didn't like you. He really wasn't interested in your opinion and you could basically sod off. So the genuinely elements of this personality, like looking in a mirror, is slightly scary. Um, let's, let's, let's dig though. I mean, I was, I've got to be honest, it's a long time since I did any significant reading on Davu before I prepped for this. And what struck me was the extent to which what he's doing is impressive. I mean, when um, oh hell, I've forgotten the the leader of the the French army's name when he um, switches sides to De Murier. Thank you. When he runs, it's Davu who goes after him. Yeah, and and sure, he doesn't manage to capture him, but nonetheless, uh, again, quoting he, well, he brings he brings back his secretary and he brings back Dumouriez's horse. And the only reason he, he doesn't bring back Dumouriez is because he managed to jump from his own horse onto um, to another soldier's horse and, and, and make his escape. Um, so, he, you know, he, he wasn't, he certainly wasn't a coward. I mean, there were few of the marshals who you could level that charge at, but he certainly wasn't afraid to put himself in danger. He's a cavalryman, though, isn't he? Yes. Um, and this is something that I'd forgotten, which is quite embarrassing. Um, but it, it just struck me, particularly because I've done a lot of bashing recently of, to a lesser extent, Ney, but particularly Murat, who I have described as being particularly, well, practically brainless, which is an over-exaggeration, it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, an opinion you share with Davi. Well, well they, I'll, I'll tell you, that's a vindication then, right? Um, but very different types of cavalry commander. You know, we have this stereotype of the cavalry commander, don't we? Dashing, flamboyant, doesn't really stop to consider the position, um, just charges in. And perhaps that's, in fairness, perhaps that's an Anglo-cism because the British cavalry has that kind of mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That problem during this period. Um, but I, I think that's something that certainly tends to be levelled at, at Murat to an extent it's levelled at May, you know, that uh, at May, at Ney that reputation for impetuosity. That you, you <laughs> impetuosity is not what you can say about Davu. No, Davu is the antithesis of the flamboyant sort of devil maker cavalryman. He he joins the Royal Champagne Regi Regi Regiment even um, when he was 18 as a Sioux Lieutenant. Um, it was the regiment in which his father had served. It was the regiment his uncle had served in and he did have a cousin there at the time. It was a very royalist regiment. Um, when he joined, it was commanded by the brother of Madame Dubarry. 
So very, very royalist pedigree there. Um, and when the revolution breaks out, most of the officers remain, are of royalist sympathy. There's a very, very small nucleus of junior officers who, like Davu, are very pro-revolution. Um, but there was a lot of trouble with the cavalry regiments in that area at the time. And after a disturbance at Hayden, um, something like 20, no, sorry, not 20 regiment, not 50 veterans, sorry, some of which, who, some of who had 20 years service, were unceremoniously discharged. And Davu was beside himself with rage that veterans could be so cavalierly treated. And fully aware that he was a junior lieutenant of no particular great ancestry. He didn't have a lot of patronage. He didn't have a strong protector. Writes this lengthy, vehemently angry letter to the government protesting in no uncertain terms how dare they treat soldiers like that and in return he gets his letter of cachet and imprisoned for six weeks at um so he he was definitely from him from his earliest days he was no royalist and despite being of minor nobility when the revolution comes he's 100 all for it all for it um He's, uh, it kind of stimulates him a very strong interest in politics and philosophy and social affairs. He does an enormous amount of reading um, to the extent that his uncle actually wrote, uh, his note is written, I despair of my nephew Davout, he will never be a soldier. Um, he, instead of working on military theory, he occupies himself far too much with philosophers. So it just goes to show your family's not always right. No, indeed. Um, but talking of family, you alluded to this earlier. Um, that firstly, that that family connection ends up being a, a problem for him, doesn't he? Doesn't it? That yeah. that mobility, but also the situation with his mother. Um, am I right in thinking that basically he had to burn a whole load of evidence, yeah, in order to get her off the hook? So after he has to leave the army for the second time, when the revolutionary government make it illegal for those of noble birth to serve, he arrives home. Um, to the family estate at Raviere, and very soon afterwards, his mother um, is served with an arrest warrant. And this is despite the fact his stepfather is a wholehearted Republican. Um, but Madame de Vu's arrested, and he accompanies her to the, the local jail in Tonnerre, um, because at the time of the arrest, they're not told why she's being arrested. There's, there's really no mention of the charge. And when they get to the jail, Davu makes inquiries and it turns out she has been arrested on a charge of conspiring with emigres or corresponding with them, at least. Um, and she has been. She um, is keeping up with family friends who, under the guise of them having sold her some property and the correspondence being about the sale. But if it's discovered, she's 100 percent going to go to the guillotine. And Davu savvy enough to recognise that immediately. He took uh, rooms at a local inn and then when darkness fell he walked back the distance of some miles to the family estate, got himself in over the garden wall so he didn't wake up any servants, woke up his sister and they went through their mother's papers, burnt every shred of incriminating evidence and then he walked all the way back and was there in Tener, funnily enough, in the morning so that when the house was searched for evidence, there was none. So she, there, they couldn't you know, continue the charges against her on the grounds that there were no evidence. Um, but it was really only through his quick thinking that his mother wasn't executed. I mean, if he'd been discovered in the act, there's a fair chance he would have been executed as well. How do we know that he did that? What's, what's the, the account that it comes from? 
Um, he left a lot of his private papers and his memoirs afterwards and his youngest daughter Adelaide uh, became the sort of caretaker of his memory and sort of reputation so there's a lot of sort of private accounts and um, reminiscences that's the word I was looking for um, yes so she she documented that a lot of those later in his life should we stay with personal family and and personal family pers personal life and family um, mm -hmm. for a, a minute I I was quite confused reading Chandler if I'm honest because he seems to imply that his first wife at least was not particularly faithful no but he seems to end up kind of quite happily married so are there just no no kids from the the first marriage how does it no. work no he his first wife yeah he had, had gone off campaign come back and had found out she was unfaithful started divorce proceedings and she died in poverty very soon afterwards um he did marry his second wife until his return from Egypt when General Leclerc was very keen to see his younger sister Amy securely settled in the knowledge that he was soon to be set uh, sent off to Haiti um on that sort of very ill-fated and ill-judged expedition so he was keen to see um Amy get settled he initially had suggested Lan as a suitable husband for her and she rejected the idea flatly because she found Lan uncouth um, she was then introduced to Davu and decided she quite liked him he liked her and they were married in November 1801 which of course then made him Pauline Bonaparte's brother-in-law okay yeah it ends up getting yeah. quite kind of intermingled so he was isn't it sort of Napoleon's brother-in-law to the second degree so to speak because he was he was Napole uh, Pauline's brother-in-law and that sort of draws him into the extended Bonaparte family because initially Napoleon hadn't been very impressed with Davu when Dissé had introduced them prior to the the Egyptian campaign but you know post Marengo etc things had changed and on Davu's marriage certificate in addition to the customary um signatures from you know legal representation he it's it's signed by Napoleon and Josephine so there's a there's a real shift in Davu's status round about that time he's become a very extended member of the Bonaparte family but he benefits from that connection definitely but they they have a point of disagreement don't they Davu and and his wife yeah she Davu becomes an ardent admirer of Napoleon almost he just borderline skirts just the edge of fanaticism. He is 100% Napoleon's man. Um, loyal to a fault, but it, it does just, for me, sometimes skirt the, you know, the edges of fanaticism. Amy Davu ends up resenting Napoleon because obviously her, her brother was Jean, uh, General Leclerc, who would die in Haiti very young. And she never really forgave Napoleon for that. She also would become very, very fond of Josephine. Um, and of course that would that would be an issue further on when, when she was divorced. But when Napoleon declared himself emperor, the a lot of the marshal's wives were found positions for as a sort of ladies of honor to the various female members of the Bonaparte family. And 
Um, had she been offered a position with Josephine, she would have probably taken it. But Amy Davy was offered a position with Madame Mer, uh, Napoleon's mother, who was not a pleasant individual by any means. Um, I think she could be quite harsh and quite demanding. And um, Amy Davy turns it down on grounds of ill health. Um, and that's that wasn't wholly a lie. She she didn't keep very well in the early years of the marriage. Uh, they lost their firstborn son and their firstborn daughter, both just short of their first birthdays. And she suffered understandably what uh, what we'd nowadays call depression. And she was very, very unhappy. And of course, Marshall, well, soon to be Marshall Davy was away most of the time as well. So she was going through a lot of that on her own. Um, she was very anxious at the time of the birth of their third child. So she didn't keep very well with her own personal health. Um, but a lot of it was also due to the fact that she she didn't want to be part of Napoleon's mother's household. Madame Juno said it's because she had pretensions above her station, but I think she was very wise in turning the position down. Yeah, that's... Uh, I'm not sure you'd really want to be uh, in the court of Napoleon's mother unless you could... I mean impressive woman in some respects but also very very severe in in her nature yeah. um let's talk about the route to the marshal's baton shall we so it's kind of rewinding to cover the, the the military side of his career you you say that initially napoleon's not hugely impressed they meet just before um the, the egypt expedition davus appointed to that and he just seems to knock it out of the park. Yeah, so initially um, he had befriended Desay during the, the Revolutionary Wars and Desay uh, seems to have made a sort of habit of befriending the least friendly generals in the Napoleonic army because he also became friends with the future Marshal Sancerre, who, like Davu, was very introverted and not the sort of person you would invite to dinner. Um, and it was, Davu was originally intended for the army of England and Desay had brought um, Davu to meet Napoleon prior to the Egyptian expedition and was kind of singing Davu's praises as a very talented general. And at this stage in his life, Davu was noted as being quite slovenly in his appearance. He didn't take a lot of, you know, care with his dress, etc. And obviously, as, as we've already discussed, he was quite introverted. He was noted by many contemporaries as lacking in the social graces. He was not a great maker of small talk. Um, and Napoleon, depending on the translation of um, that you, you look at, either called him a damned brute or an effing beast. Um, he was not impressed with him at all. But Desay had kind of um, encouraged Napoleon to bring Davu to Egypt. And so he does. Um, he fought he the um commanded a, the cavalry under Dissay. He fought at the Battle of the Pyramids. Um, he took quite badly ill in Egypt several times, but he had dysentery and got left behind when Dissay's um forces went after Murad Bey. Also again in Egypt kind of reared his head as very willing to clash with his superiors when necessary he clashed really really severely with cleaver um who tried to promote him to to um divisional general davu turned it down because he thought it was a bribe um because he was really resistant 
to evacuation when after Napoleon uh, abandoned the army and eventually only put his 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 signature to the paperwork when there all other options were were basically out um but yeah he fought at Abukir. he was involved in a fairly long list of battles he as he did throughout his whole career he commanded his men well he was he was never loved by his men certainly not in the sense that lamb was or nay or you know even the likes of people like Udenor or mcdonald but he was respected he was always respected and he took a very close interest in the welfare of his men he always made sure they were well supplied um and kept you know in rigid discipline so he actually is the egyptian campaign where kind of makes his name probably it's where he shows that he's not just Dissey's friend he's actually a very very competent general in his own right what's coming across quite strongly here is the sort of sense particularly for people who know the kind of the headlines of, of Wellington's command style, that Davout sort of sounds like a French Wellington. Uh, yeah, that, in, that I, I always think there's a really strong overlap in, in a lot of the different ways. Obviously, Wellington is also described as not a great maker of small talk and someone who was quite cold and quite austere, um, who could have, you know, very strong friendships with a small, sort of fairly small circle. Um, as Davu did, he became, you know, he was friend, a very good friend of say He became a very close, long, had a long-standing friendship with Marshal Ludino, got on very well with Marshal Saint-Cyr, General Goudin, etc. Um, abhorred looting, absolutely detested it, would have none of it under his command, um, unlike other marshals, uh, like Messina and Sult, who would have stolen anything that wasn't nailed down. Um, but no, and he kept it for him. themselves as well. Not yes, even absolutely. just just let the men have it. It's just like, yeah, I'll I'll go and stick that in my lovely chateau back in France. Thank you. Yes. No, he abhorred looting. He punished it very harshly. He would have, you know, executed plunderers, etc., or or rapists. He very much ensured that his corps was kept in exception exceptional discipline. So there there are quite a lot of similarities with with Wellington I think the only the only big difference is that Davu was a very good husband and Wellington was obviously an atrocious one but other than that I think there's it's fair to say there's a good deal of overlap that was exactly what I was about to say there that yeah the the differences in terms of their um their commitments to their marriage vows are very very obviously not the same um let's let's talk about the the acquisition if you like, of the Marshal Baton, because he's 34. And like you say, he's not known for his, his friendships. So what's the reaction like when news breaks that, yeah, so next up on the list is that guy Davu, who you don't seem yeah. to particularly like, guys. He's very, so he is, yeah, he's 34. He's the youngest on the list. And he's not, you know, there's a lot of generals, from, you know, greater superiority, greater seniority than him. At this stage, he's a divisional general. He's he's never had a wholly independent command. He's never commanded a whole army. So there's quite a few eyebrows raised. And, and Gallagher, his biographer, certainly suggests that he sort of steps into dead men's shoes, as it were, because had Leclerc lived as Pauline's Bonaparte's husband, he would almost assuredly have been given a baton. Um, you know, Murat, he... Caroline's husband obviously did and later acquired a kingdom. Um, 
Desai also would have been a very strong candidate for Baton as well. So he had connections to two very sort of much lamented generals from Napoleon's perspective. He he generally did mourn the loss of Desai and um, Leclerc. So as the sort of connection there, as his sort of brother-in-law's brother-in-law, he has that sort of very faint but family connection nonetheless. Now, some people slightly more generous say that this was an example of Napoleon's great foresight and that he identified in Davout this sort of great general of French history. Um, but I think it's slightly more likely that it was because he didn't have maybe a great many great supporters, but he did have two very strong connections and, um, you know, to generals who Napoleon mourned and you know when he lost men Napoleon was capable of being very sentimental about it and so I think he sort of got a baton in lieu of Dessay or Leclerc. Yeah it's it's a curious one isn't it that fact that Davout goes on to do such remarkable things and it's it's worth saying that you know 1804 onwards is almost kind of like the coming of age of Davout particularly 1804 to I mean, he's not in the 1815 uh, uh, campaign, but the 1804-1813, he really shows his quality. Okay, there's, there's an interlude, actually, during the, the Russia campaign, which we'll perhaps we'll talk about where he doesn't do quite so well. But nonetheless, it, it almost, it's hard to pinpoint it, but there's almost this sense that that nod that he gets empowers him to do more. Because he, this is worth saying, this guy becomes a student of his field as well as being a workaholic and we should probably talk about his work ethic he does take the time to sit down and, and learn his craft properly and, and study you know the big military names mm -hmm. uh, of history um, so for all that his um his family might have kind of scorned him for having spent too much time focusing on philosophers earlier in his life mm -hmm. he does turn to um the history books in time so, I mean, let's let's just stay with that. Let's talk about his um, his work ethic. He 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 seems like a workaholic. If I'm being honest with you, yeah, he had a very strong attention to detail. If you read some of his correspondence, um, and some of it uh, is available online, translated into English. Um, prior to, um, it's actually prior to the Russian campaign, but he's talking about the need for soldiers to have sort of you know small individual kettles to make sure that they they were able to you know make soup etc um his core was always the best supplied there was no detail on which he stinted he made sure that they had um you know fresh as fresh as they could but the fresh rations then they carried flour there were shoe nails there were um you know a certain amount of, of spare linen etc he didn't stint on ensuring that his men were looked after. And that's part of the reason why their discipline was so good because, you know, even in Russia, his men were the last to run out of food. He, um, you know, kept very, he, he wrote very lengthy letters. He was never vague about, he was very precise in what he wrote and what he said uh, in the correspondence with his divisional generals, his three immortals, you know, Friant, Moran and, Moral, sorry, and uh, Goudon. He corresponded in detail with Berthier, who he would eventually come to have a feud with uh, in 1809. But yeah, he, he had a very keen eye for detail 
and it reflected in the quality of his men. He drilled his men very severely as well. Okay, so I'm going to go there. The, the elephant in the room of any conversation when it comes to Davu, Auerstadt, which is, I mean, I'll be honest, I would say Auerstadt's probably the most impressive battle of the Napoleonic Wars, in my opinion. People will come at me for that, I'm sure, and tell me, no, you've forgotten X, Y, and Z, and how can you possibly, as a devotee of Colt Wellington, not kind of rank Salamanca as greater or something, but Salamanca is good. It's Wellington at his best, in my humble opinion. It, it ain't Auerstadt, though. Um, there's, there's no contention about that whatsoever. Um, so take it away, fill people in. What happens? Yeah, so Napoleon has every intention of bringing the Prussian forces to battle at Jena and stations Marshal Davout and the, by this point then Marshal Bernadotte as well um, with a view to cutting off the Prussian retreat um, when and if necessary. Um, but Napoleon does not in fact face off with the main body of Prussian forces at Jena. Davout runs slap bang into them at Erstadt and he is he has the third corps who as I've mentioned were in exceptional condition well supplied um, very very well drilled but he has got 28,000 men to the Prussians 63,000 men so it's odds of two to one and then some and he, his men withstand heavy heavy fire there's a huge amount of casualties by, by the end of the day but they do withstand it and he keeps his men's morale up he encourages them um through well depending on which school of thought you belong to marshall bernadotte does not turn up what either from some people's point of view out of sheer spite because he and davio hate each other or which I'm more inclined to, the, there's a bit of vagary in the orders issued prior to the battle. And the simple fact is he he's not aware of where he needs to be, but there's a lot of contention about that. And Napoleon in hindsight said he would have had Bernadotte shot, but I don't think it was necessarily a deliberate um, or spiteful decision. Not one that necessarily reflects well on him, but I don't think it was out of spite. Um, which leaves Davu's core, single core, on its own, facing more or less the main Prussian army. And uh, Gudon's division in particular takes a hell of a pounding. But they hold and they hold, and then he orders a, a decisive attack forward and they rout the Prussian forces. Um, this is going on simultaneously to the battle at Jena, and Davu sends his aide de camp to Napoleon basically to account what's happened and Napoleon is in disbelief he actually says to the ADC your marshal must be seeing double because Davu wore glasses and it's not until actually later on when they verify that the battle has indeed taken place and it has indeed been the fact that you know Davu has faced off with the whole Prussian force that he writes to Murat um, Davu has had a superb affair he alone has battled 60,000 Prussians and he writes back to Davu in the most glowing of terms and sends a proclamation to the Third Corps. But it's interesting that for all that sort of effusive praise, and of course Davu would go on to become the Duke of Erstadt, um, when the bulletin was published after Jena, there's about five lines 
about Urstadt. And the way it's phrased very sort of carefully suggests that Davu simply had performed well on the right of the battlefield. It's not phrased as being two distinctly separate battles. And I know we'll make the episode or oh, ages ago where we debated what was you know Napoleon's best battle. I mentioned that he he didn't give out victory titles for the battles he thought were his best. And he almost you know didn't want to share the limelight of Jena. Davu performed well on our right, but rather than saying, you know, there's been a victory at Jena, there has been an even more impressive victory at Erstadt, he retains the sort of main celebration for himself. And it's only really after the fact that Davu was rewarded for it. Oh, Napoleon, just when there are moments when you start to think, well, maybe am I just a tiny bit too harsh on the guy? And then you come across a little pearl like that and you just think, no, no. I mean, look, it's classic of the man, isn't it? Master of propaganda. It's what you'd expect. But yeah, no, that's that's not a that's that's distasteful, I think, given the scale of because uh, it's worth saying Napoleon thinks he's facing the main Prussian yeah. army, and, and he's not. Um, it's all about Davout. Um, and from what I remember of Yale, it sure, it goes Napoleon's way, but it's not the imbalance of the forces are, are such that you would have expected mm-hmm. it to be over faster and more decisively on Napoleon's side. Is that fair? Yeah. Uh, is a, a bit rusty. French historian whose name's gone right out of my head. It's Francois Guy somebody, his last name begins with an H. Um, he summed up, he said, at Jena, Napoleon won a battle he could not lose. At Erstadt, Davout won a battle he could not win. And, you know, and, and when you look at the balance of the numbers, that's exactly right. Then if you purely speculatively, if somebody put those numbers in front of you and you said, who's going to win? Of course you would say the Prussians. It was just, you know, against outstanding odds. It, it really was. Um, and Davout is also one of these who, who keeps playing quite key roles in a number of the subsequent battles. I mean, let's take Austerlitz. I don't want to steal your thunder here, but let, let's talk Auschwitz. Yeah. He, he, so he very often ends up holding the French right and does so successfully. So Austerlitz, as much as we say Austerlitz is Napoleon's triumph and, you know, of all the marshals, Soult was the, maybe the most central. Realistically, it was Davout's men marched 78 miles in 48 hours because obviously Napoleon wanted to underplay the, the perception of how much forces he, he had, how many men he had, and sort of bait the, the allies into a trap, which of course he very successfully did, and it was Soult who smashed the centre. If Davout hadn't turned up on time to hold the right, Austerlitz doesn't have, well, it would happen, but Napoleon certainly wouldn't have won. It wouldn't have won. The army's going to be enveloped, they're going to lose. And so the third corps, as I say, 70 miles in 48 hours and he still holds the right impeccably that's a reflection on his work ethic his discipline of his men um, and the quality of the third corps as well you've you've literally taken the words right out of my mouth because what you have there that ability to march that far that fast and then fight successfully i mean we talk about uh, Crawford doing an equivalent. He moves his um, light division something like 
50 miles, I want to say, in the space of a couple of days uh, in order to try and get them to Talavera on time, but doesn't succeed. Um, and we go, you know, Crawford, remarkable achievement there, but to march further in the same length of time and then fight a battle is something that, as you say, can only be down to the time that's gone in before that mm -hmm. in terms of drill, discipline, making sure that the men are equipped, um, keeping them at that kind of peak of fitness and prowess and keeping them as this finely tuned instrument, mm -hmm. the better metaphor, to then be able to get them to do that. Because if you've got raw conscripts or if you've got poor morale, they're never going to do that. And you might be able to yeah. march them that far if you threaten them with everything under the sun, but they won't then stand and fight as a cohesive force. So it's, it's a staggering mm -hmm. achievement. Um, but it doesn't stop there, does it? I mean, Friedland, Wagram, Eilau, as you'd expect with somebody yeah. who goes on to become um, one of Napoleon's top three, probably even top two. I mean, you've got to, you've got to factor in Bertier. In, yeah, in case, I think obviously, but a pure generalship, most people seem to agree that it's either Davu or Massena. Some people throw lands and uh, land into the bargain as well. Um, but yeah, usually Bertier, of course, nobody's going to dispute was the most essential. But in terms of generalship, I will always put Davu top. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time praising the guy. I suppose we should be balanced in the interests of fairness and talk about some of the failures. There are a couple of them. Um, Russia seems to be the big one. And it was interesting, again, reading Chandler, to note that as a result of what happens in Russia, there's this sort of cooling off in the relationship mm -hmm. um, between Napoleon and Davout. Um, which yeah. I, I don't know. Do you think that's justified? I think it's sort of slightly bit harsh and kind of a bit of a scapegoating exercise there. Yeah. So up until up until Russia, Davu had done incredibly well out of Napoleon. So although he could be ungrateful, he was um, in Napoleon's defence a very generous rewarder of good service. So Davu was second only to Bertier in terms of financial endowment. He had received over 900,000 francs um, per annum and De Bertier was over a million and he had been made Duke of Erstadt and then Prince, Prince of Ekmo. Um, but Russia seems to, to mark a key psychological change in Napoleon's perception of Davy. And it's quite interesting depending on the way you look at it how the, the reason for that um Davu's biographer seems to suggest that some of it's down to jealousy in that Napoleon is quite jealous of his reputation as the foremost military genius of Europe and almost doesn't want to be sort of outdone um, so for the Russian campaign, Davu is given um, command of the First Corps, which is over 70,000 men. Um, he, as always, is a workaholic, is diligent, is, you know, concerned with the minutiae of making sure his men are so supplied. So I can just read something from, from the book. Um, his men were noted as being as well turned out they could have been the Imperial Guard. So the, the preparations he's made are exceptional. But this is where the multiple enemies he'd made amongst the marshal it kind of come back to bite him. Um, 
he had clashed with Berthier and then Napoleon went to Danzig. Um, here, Davout's enemies were able to gain the emperor's ear without the marshal present to defend himself. They twisted his diligent preparations, his endless labor and his enthusiasm and used them against them. So this is now quoting Segur. The marshal said they wishes to have it thought that he has foreseen, arranged and ex executed everything. Is the emperor then to be no more than a spectator of this expedition? Must the glory of it devolve on Davout? To which Napoleon exclaimed, one would think it was he who commanded the army. Um, nor did his enemies stop short at this point. Once they realized that they had the emperor's attention, they lost a full scale attack on the marshal. Was it not Davout who, after the victory in Jena, drew the emperor into Poland? Is it not he who is now anxious for this new Polish war? He who possesses several large properties in that country and whose accurate and severe probity has won over the Poles and who is suspected of aspiring to their throne. So Berthier, Murat, particularly Davout's foremost enemies in the marsh, like, use that opportunity to kind of say to Napoleon, he's after your glory. He's trying to take the credit. Do you want the Russian campaign to sort of be Davout's triumph and not yours? So that kind of marks the first point of Napoleon's relationship with Davout starting to sour. It's then further exacerbated when um, Davout is ordered to work alongside Jérôme Bonaparte, who he's also fallen out with uh, prior to the Russian campaign. Um, Is there anyone he hasn't fallen out with by the end of this war? He was really good chums with Oudinot, so they, they never okay. kind of really fell out. But yeah, he had a fairly lengthy list of enemies. Um, yeah, so he'd clashed previously with Jérôme Bonaparte and they're ordered to cut Bagration off before he can get his, his forces back to, to rejoin the other um, Russian contingents. Davu is where he's supposed to be, does what he's supposed to do with sort of pinpoint accuracy. And Jérôme Bonaparte, who should never have been commanding any military force. Agreed. Because he had not the competence or the wherewithal to do so, kind of shuffles his feet and dilly-dallies and complains about the roads and you know it's not his fault his men aren't well enough supplied and the roads are really bad and Napoleon sends him very sharp rebuke saying well if you can't march you know what about the troops of Davout and Bagration but he issues Davout with an order saying you know if the two forces his and Jerome's should unite Davout can take command and sensing that Bagration's about to slip the, tra uh, the, the trap, slip out of the trap, Davu sort of prematurely takes command, at which point Jerome Bonaparte flounces off in a huff and refuses to serve under Davu. And although Napoleon reads his brother the riot act, he also blames Davu for it because he says he sort of jumped the gun if he, you know, hadn't been too quick at taking command, you know, they might still have trapped Bagration's forces and, you know, was it, was he so ambitious to be the main commander, etc. Um, so he kind of holds him to fault as well, which I would argue unfairly if he hadn't put his useless brother in command of um, a corps instead of, you know, some a, a talented general of whom he was not short, it might have been a different story. But then just to continue the sort of pattern of falling out with everybody, Davu then clashed with Mura, who he'd never liked, who he'd always thought was basically a, an idiot. Um, and they quarreled in front of Napoleon, um, who took Mura's side and actually detached some of Davu's divisions to give them 
to to Mura. Um, Ooh, as far I bet as that I, went down well. <laughs> as far as Davu was concerned, Mura was reckless. Um, he did not take enough care of his men's lives. He did not think things through. I mean, none of which is inaccurate. And had basically said, look, you can destroy your own corps if you want. You can throw away the cavalry to suit yourself. You will not do the same to my men. But Napoleon took, took Mura's side. Um, and so whether or not it's true, some say that it, it only it took a fair amount of intervention, um, you know, only with the intervention of several other officers that Davu and Mira would persuaded not to fight a duel. Um, but I'm not sure how accurate that is. I've not seen it mentioned elsewhere. But um, then came the retreat. Davu was initially made the rear guard, um, but General Pelleport had stated in his memoirs, we generally complained about Marshal Davu. He was too methodical for an irregular retreat. He was blamed for stopping too often, for manoeuvring before the Cossacks and not doing the devil's part. However, it should be pointed out in fairness to the Marshal that broken fords, broken bridges, an unruly crowd of stragglers on foot, on horseback and in carriages, retarded his march and furnished the enemy with frequent occasions to worry him, to squeeze him closely and to force him to fight. Um, it, this... Davu doesn't really lose battles throughout his career in the in this sort of standard sense of what we could call a failure. Um, but he's deemed too slow to be a rear guard. And at one point his baggage is captured. So Davu's baton is in Russia. Um, and eventually Ney uh, is sent by Napoleon to replace him. And the sort of big fallout um, or, or the real sort of waning of his star comes when He's ordered to wait at Krasny for men in these men to catch up, but it's impossible for W to hold out. And in, for a time, Ney and his corps is presumed lost. So Ney and 6,000 men. And Napoleon and Bertie find a very convenient scapegoat in Davu for not marching back. And it would have been suicide. It would have been thrown away, not just Davu, but also his men. Um, Certainly, he and Ney had words about it afterwards. Davu had tried to explain himself, and Ney had said, well, God can be your judge. Um, but yeah, by the, end of, by the end of Russia, Davu's not Napoleon's sort of, he's not in the inner circle anymore. Um, and that's maybe reflected in the fact that he's then sent to Hamburg. He's not given active commands for the majority of the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. He's, he's tied up in Hamburg when, despite, you know, despite being demonstrably Napoleon's one of his most uh, successful generals, his talents are wasted. He was, was also a superb administrator, there's no doubting it, but he's kept out of the way when he would have been considerably more useful than, than some of the other commanders. The factional infighting between the marshals never fails to astonish me in terms of just what a monumental case of shooting themselves in the foot that represents. Yeah, um, they were cooperators. They really were. And this is the, the big bugbear in Spain, that better cooperation between the marshals would quite likely have created a strategic situation that Wellington couldn't have overcome. And yeah. it was, in actual fact, the inclination for those individuals to acts as if they have sort of their own mini fiefdoms and that lack of centralized control that was a problem and it's really interesting to see that same kind of infighting that it's not a, a professional word but that bitchiness 
between mm-hmm. the marshals of well he said this and well I want to do that and well it's, it's almost playground-esque at times but it, it's played out amongst all of them they're all vying for the emperor's eye yeah I mean I, I know you see it in other periods of history as well when you have one sort of big centralized figure the sort of inner circle are all jockeying for position but I mean Napoleon abhorred dueling if he hadn't and had he permitted intermarshalate duels there would have been significantly less um marshals by the end of the napoleonic wars because they had would have had it off each other it, it, yeah there's there's no disputing that um i can well imagine that Miro would have been foremost amongst those as well um let's let's talk about hamburg uh napoleon himself said that it would take him 10 years and what was it 40 million francs to make hamburg defensible and then he just goes to me right yeah um Good luck. And to Davout's credit, he he holds he held it. it for six months. He does it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Napoleon's, abdi- Napoleon's lost France and Davout's still holding Hamburg. Yeah. How is that even possible? Again, just that he has this sort of ability to plant his feet and not be moved and the wind can blow against him and the enemy can throw everything they have against him and he does not give in it's a real sort of intractable stubbornness about him but also a very sort of strong belief in duty um we've mentioned Chandler's account in the marshals there are a couple of other compendiums that touch on the whole all of the mar- the whole group the whole marshalet is um as a one and, and discusses them all in detail outside individual biographies. And a couple of them are quite sensationalist, A.G. MacDonald and um, R.F. Delderfield. But there is a sentence in A.G. MacDonald's um, book that I think sums up Davu's character to perfection. And it was that every man in the Grand Army could have hated the sight of him and Davu wouldn't have lost a single wink of sleep as long as he felt he had done his duty and had done what's right. And that absolutely sums him up. He had a very sort of strong focus on this is my duty. Um, for much of the Napoleonic Wars, he equated Napoleon with France, so which was why he was so fervently loyal. Um, what is best for France is doing what Napoleon bids, and I will do it to the letter. So he doesn't have the same degree of self-interest of, as, that many of the other marshals do. Murat, the minute he thought his kingdom was in jeopardy, buggers off. Soult and Messina spent the majority of the conflicts filling their pockets, as did Brune, as did Augereau. Um, you know, and, and that's this isn't to sort of try and sanctify Davu. He, I'll come to the sort of most discrediting thing in his, his life in a second. Um, but he had a very strong sense of duty. He was in it for France not for himself um to the point that at one uh, on one occasion napoleon said it's necessary that i give to him i.e rewards because he won't take for himself that's not something you could have really said about virtually any of the other marshals that's that's very very true but you gave us a teaser there we can't keep the listeners waiting on that teaser yeah so the reason that Davu can hold Hamburg for six months in the most atrocious of conditions to the point that they were melting ice for drinking water was that he expelled over 20,000 civilians into the depths of winter, which 
we would call a war crime today, accurately so. Um, now, in some, some, I've seen some people argue, well, what else was he supposed to do? It was war, you know, bad things happen in war. But I, I can't see a way that you can reconcile that as being an acceptable decision. It was incredibly harsh. And that's why, in addition to being called the Iron Marshal, he was called the Beast of Hamburg. Yeah, it's one of those decisions, isn't it, that if you think about it purely in military terms and cut all humanity out of it, um, then yes, it, of course, logically, you need to hold the position, you need to preserve your resources and your civilian population isn't going to do anything other than consume those resources, which you can give to your men. But we are all humans at the end of the day, and that's, mm. that's not a... Um, a good look on on anybody's um, record, is it? Um, what's his reputation like in Germany then, if if there's that to contend with? Well, it's the Beast of Hamburg is kind of how he's is known, but they did acknowledge him as you know a very talented general. Um, there's an occasion where there's a, a, a Prussian aristocrat and I'm sorry I can't remember the name had come to the the French court and he's mentioned as the Prince of Ekmul and um, they said don't worry Prussia hasn't forgotten he was also called the Duke of Erstadt they acknowledged <laughs> that he was a very very capable very competent foe um, but yeah Hamburg really kind of taints his otherwise pretty clean sheet because he had abhorred Luton, he had abhorred pillaging, he'd never let his men sort of plunder their way across the country or, um, you know, inflict horrors on the civilian pop population. To, so to have lived your whole military career upholding those standards, it really does sort of spoil it in the end, I think. It does. I mean, that's not quite the end, in fairness. There is... Yeah. The up until the first, yeah, first yeah. application. Um, there is the 1815 campaign where he doesn't, obviously he's not at Waterloo. Um, people love to do the, the big what if, you know, if you stick to Vu at Catrebra, what happens? Um, well, newsflash folks, the same thing, because the reason why May didn't win was because he didn't have the men with him because they were strung out on the march. That's the problem at Catrebra. Um, that's just a... Uh, the French are strung out on the march issue. It's not even particularly a well done Wellington. It's who can get men, who can get boots on the ground faster. Um, so setting that stupid rabbit hole aside that I've just wandered into, um, what is he doing during the Waterloo campaign? Because, I mean, he's left in France, um, but that doesn't mean that he's sitting back idly. No. Um, so Davu had never really reconciled himself to the bonds even after Russia even after Hamburg he was still a Bonapartist um, and he really wasn't a fan of, of Louis and having um, only surrendered after someone he trusted um, brought the news to him of Napoleon's abdication at Hamburg not when Louis's representatives had communicated the um, news he was sort of in pseudo disgrace until Napoleon arrives again. And Davu and Lefebvre were the two marshals waiting to greet Napoleon in Paris on his return. Um, and he, he says to Davu, I need you to be Minister of War. And Davu had replied, 
you know, your majesty, it's not the role that I think I'm best suited for. I, I can be of much more use on the battlefield. And Napoleon sort of brings out what you, you would basically call emotional blackmail, that I'm alone, everybody's against me, will you now turn against me too, kind of thing. And eventually Davu relents and accepts the ministry. And he's damn good at it because he's a very, very talented administrator. He basically works miracles raising the army that is available for the Waterloo campaign. Um, and again, there's the, the debate, is he left in Paris as Minister of War because Napoleon knew that he was categorically loyal and would never turn? Or is it that, again, as Gallagher suggests, that Napoleon was reluctant to be eclipsed and the one marshal he had, who was likely to do that now that Masséna had sort of past his peak was Davu. I mean, nobody really knows, but it, it could be either answer. Either way, Davu is Minister of War and sits out the whole campaign. Um, he then has to organise the, the sort of straggling forces that come back after Waterloo and organise the defence of Paris. And it's here that Davu's cast iron integrity really shows itself because he has to negotiate um, with the returning Bourbons. He, he has enough men to fight for Paris if he wanted to. Um, but with Napoleon sort of defeated, he had, I think had come to the realization that Napoleon was no longer what was best for France or that Napoleon had ceased to be France. And he was just anxious to prevent any more French loss of life. But he sent 13 conditions. The, the um, Royalists had sent Udino, I think, banking on their long friendship to him to say, you know, it's time, time up, basically. And Davu agreed to um, surrender Paris, basically, as long as 13 conditions were met. And one of those conditions were that no officers be prescribed of their military rank or their civil position. And the Royalists gave assurances to Davu that that wouldn't happen and then probably broke their word. Um, and amongst those prescribed, of course, were Grouchy and Ney. Um, and, and maybe it was naivety on Davu's part that he thought Louis would hold up his end of the bargain. Um, maybe it was that he, he did want to have faith, who knows, but either way, he was absolutely beside himself with rage again and had written to say I can see Grouchy's name and um, Clausel's name etc on this list you'd better swap it for mine because they were doing what I instructed as minister for war hold me accountable but he was he was unsuccessful and um was called as a witness for the trial of Ney who he had tried so hard to convince to take a military court martial but Ney was his own worst enemy when it came to this last stage of his life he he wouldn't be advised he had been offered papers and a passport to escape he turned them down he turned down the military court martial he turned down the chance to be classed as a german citizen on the technicality of his birth etc and there really wasn't anything davu could have done to save him but he turned up at the trial and was called as a witness and said these men were under my command and I would not have surrendered Paris had I not believed they would be, um, had I you know, not believed they would have been treated fairly. Um, and all that happens as a result of that, 
nay shot and Davu having nailed his flag to the mask as being, you know, not in any way reconciled to the Bourbons, is sent to Louvier and basically lives under house arrest. He is stripped of his marshalette, he is stripped of his titles, he's stripped of his salary, and for two years he and his family are basically living on a handful of francs a day. Very, very little. I mean, they're in borderline poverty. They have to dismiss all their servants. His wife has to go to Paris and handle all the sort of administration element of renting out their Paris property because they have no money. Um, and it's it's not for two years later that eventually they relent, largely through the intercessions of Marshall MacDonald um, and supported by Oudinot that he gets his salary and his titles back. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, he doesn't suffer... It, uh, so he suffers obviously reputationally in the immediate aftermath. He doesn't suffer in the longer term for that willingness to, to sit down and negotiate. And sure, that's in part because those conditions are attached. But why is it that his reputation doesn't take a bit of a hammering in the longer term for that willingness to, uh, what I would say, may, is make a, a very kind of savvy decision and decide that, well, yeah, it's all over and, and give up Paris because that's acknowledging that it's fundamentally all over for Napoleon's regime which in some circles you do that and that's treason and that's not what's pinned on Davu in the subsequent memory. Um, he is attacked from some quarters he's noted as having abandoned um, the Napoleon and of course Napoleon on um, St Helena says um, I thought Davu loved me but he loved only France and he was just like the rest of them he'd, he'd been given titles and, and wealth and was out to protect what he'd been given although he then later changed his mind and called Davu one of the purest glories of France so he he was very changeable in his later years I think honestly what saves Davu's reputation is his prior basically blemishless conduct which you can't necessarily level at the likes of um, Mura, but also that willingness to more or less lay his life on the line trying to save Ney, because it would have been very, very easy for them to turn around and say, well, you're acknowledging you would have fought on, you would have fought against the rightful, uh, the, the rightful king in Paris, you would have done basically just what Ney did, we'll shoot you as well. It would have been very, very easy to talk himself against you know, a wall and have a fighting squad in front of him. But he never stinted, he never hesitated. He did what he thought was right. Do we know what his wife made of that, you know, when he's kind of preparing to give this evidence? Um, not that I've ever come across so far. I don't imagine she was probably terribly delighted about it. No, nor me, nor me. Um, you talk about there is a, a restoration of, of rank and titles, but it almost feels sort of too little too late, doesn't it? Because it's not long before there's a lot of heartbreak in the family and, and his health kind of deserts him. Yeah, he, he lived a very quiet life. And as I say, he, he never really reconciled himself to the Bourbon. Some of them did. Um, to, some of them just sort of, i.e. the marshal, some of them did become very pro-Bourbon. Some of them sort of just blew with the changes, but... Davu never really could. He was always a Bonapartist through and through. 
He lived very quietly. He became the mayor of Sauvigny-sur-Orge um, just the year before he died. Um, the one sort of happy time in the, the later years was the marriage of his eldest daughter, Josephine. She was much beloved. She was the first of their children to survive infancy after those first kind of devastating losses. And the wedding was attended by so many Napoleonic officers. It was actually subject to conspiracy rumors. Um, because it was basically a who's who of Napoleon's army. But that kind of joy turned to tragedy very, very quickly. Within a year, she had died of complications of um, childbirth. And it was that loss. He, he'd been the one who kind of held his family up through the, those early losses while his wife suffered. And that death just seemed to break him, understandably. The, the loss of a child. We talk about, you know, infant mortality and child mortality being so much higher then, but it couldn't have hit any easier. Um, and it just devastated him, really, really broke him. And his health declined from that point on. And he died of tuberculosis in 1823. It's a sad end. I mean, he, it by my calculations, he was what, 53? Um, mm -hmm. Which even for that time, wasn't a great age. Um, sure, Napoleon's gone um in 1821 at uh, ish the same age but it, it's not a a great age to to pass away uh, even for that period Rachel this has been exceptional what a way to kick off this mini feature I mean if, if ever this was going to be the pilot and it wasn't I was absolutely locked in for this series but this is one hell of a pilot um to to run with thank you so much for sharing what seems like your boundless knowledge on this um, we'll be back in a month, folks, where, well, we'll leave you guessing who we might do next. Uh, but Rachel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. A particular shout out to my Emperor Level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb and Rachel Stark. My Commander patrons, John Haynes, Ger Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, Michael Guest, and Graham Swydenbank. And my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, M. Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Miles Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Cothlan, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson and Graham Goodwin. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.